welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man whom I would never substitute, even given five opportunities. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Even with five opportunities? I'm not sure I believe you. You'd have to be playing pretty badly. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully that never happens. Hopefully there never comes a time in the show when you just stop and say, like, I'm using one of the subs. I'm bringing in Travis Clark. <laughs> You'd have to be waiting by his mic, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's what a good substitute does. Otherwise, yeah. it, that becomes a whole new story unto itself. Well, you know what? A lot of people have their earphones now with the little um, speaker piece. Mm-hmm. Like, if there was a way to just sub someone in mid-podcast, but they'd have to be listening to it, there's a whole time delay that wouldn't work out. I mean, or just be, like, if you just tell them we're going to be recording from, like, 4.30 until 5.30, so be ready. I might call you just in case something goes south if I need that fifth <laughs> sub. There you go. If Taylor's below par. <laughs> um, so we, we've got all kinds of listener questions to answer today. But first, a bit of news, or at least mm-hmm. a suggestion. Uh, so FIFA suggested... That if teams do start playing football, you know, like the Bundesliga wants to, like the Premier League wants to, to see out the end of the present season um, and they have to cram a bunch of games into a very short space of time, FIFA suggested a temporary, um, a temporary revolution in substitutions where you could make five subs a game in, say, the Premier League um, instead of the regular three. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I think the other little things in there would be there might still be the opportunity for a six substitute I- in extra time, though that is still subject to a, yeah, a final decision. In a, cup, in a cup competition, right? Here is the thing that I was confused about with this, because, again, this is all sort of waiting for approval. More on that in a moment. They said substitutions would have to be made in a maximum of three slots plus the halftime interval. Does that mean you only have certain windows to make substitutions? I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to make them at the 65th minute. Yeah. It, it means that the normal thing is you can only make three subs, right? Mm-hmm. So what they're trying to do is not add any more delays or stoppages to the game. Um, so you just have to use those three slots mm-hmm. plus half time to make your five subs total. So right. if you're going to make five subs, you would have to change like one of when you're bringing someone in, in the 70th minute, maybe you bring two people in instead, instead of 70th and 80th. Oh, okay. So it wouldn't be like every 15 minutes they're stopping no. to check the sideline and see if you've got uh, somebody. All right, cool. Yeah. I think they're just trying to, um, avoid the obvious criticism people would have had, which is that this adds more stoppages to the game. Mm -hmm. And then here is the other confusing element of this. This is a strange example of like reading the headline is maybe all you need to do, because if you're unfamiliar with the way things work, the story of FIFA, the governing body, are like half proposing an idea, but it still has to be approved by this other entity called IFAB. You might be a little bit confused. Do you want me to explain IFAB? I, mean, I, I, think, I, we, I think we've done it before, but yeah, go ahead and do it. Uh, I'll give you 30 seconds. Otherwise, I'm calling in a sub. Okay, so the four United Kingdom home nations, um, because that's where football started, it was where the rules of football were codified, they sit with FIFA on the International Football Association's board, and that's who has ultimate say on what the rules of football are. You started going most, deep, and then you the summed most, it up quickly. Nicely that's done. That's the most succinct I've ever done it, I think. I think it really was. It really was. Yeah. So, yes, they will uh, have the decision, and then if they approve it, then it's up to the individual like member organizations. Basically, then like the Premier League would have to say, yeah, we're going to utilize yeah. this, uh, this new rule change. All right, here's my hot take. Mm-hmm. Um, if we are cramming in a bunch of games to like get the season done, basically so that the Premier League can still get its TV money, mm-hmm. um, 
I think this is a good idea um, if it's temporary because I think it will stop players, you know, it, it will relieve some of the pressure um, on players' bodies if they're playing too many games in a short space of time. Uh, yeah, and we may have already said this, but to reiterate to your point about it being temporary, it sounds like it would be for the remainder of this season if uh, matches get back underway, then next yeah. year until December 31st of next year of 2021, and then it would go back to revert to like the three uh, plus one in injury time. At least that's the way it would stand right now. So it does seem like it would be temporary. Temporary. I, I I'm wait, really. Wait, did you just say three plus one in injury time? What's that about? Yeah, can't you do that now? Don't you have a four sub in in, in, uh, in extra time? In extra time, Sorry, in yeah, it's competitions. A, it's a weird flop around thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so yeah, it would probably go back to that one in what January first of 2022. Uh, I but mean, yeah, why so- don't they? Why don't they just say until we have a vaccine? <laughs> do you <laughs> know what I mean? Because yeah. no, but you don't know when this stop start crisis that affects football and obviously everything is going to be over. I understand putting an end date on it because people would be nervous yeah. that this would be like a backdoor to having five substitutions. But I'm also a little bit on board for just five substitutions because there are so many good players on so many teams, we'd get to see more of them. Yeah, you might be. But I think a lot of other uh, organizations, it would be a tough sell. And I think anytime, uh, just ask Grant Wall, anytime you're packaging a thing as because of coronavirus, but then potentially it goes on after coronavirus is dealt with, I think is where maybe people, you'd get a little bit of hesitation. People would be less likely to approve this as opposed to a temporary experimental measure because of the situation. All right, but flip side, if mm-hmm. we had five subs all season, Richie yeah. Ledesma would already have his Eredivisie debut. I mean, you're not wrong. You'd get more players, more <laughs> minutes. You would have an opportunity to get more people on the field, literally, which means you get more of an opportunity figuratively. <laughs> so I, 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 I see how it makes sense. The thing for me is that, like, I understand that they're couching it as a, because we're going to have a fixture congestion, there's more opportunity for injury, so we want to have the opportunity to get more people minutes so that you're limiting the impact. Yeah. To me, it's not really about player safety. It's exactly what you said. It's they're desperate to get these games in. This allows them to get these games in without the entire team being plagued by injuries. Yeah. So it still feels a bit like... Yeah, they're they're basically making changes because they need to make the money and this will allow them to play those games. Otherwise, maybe they wouldn't <laughs> be able to. And my other hesitation, my other like kind of negative feeling about this, because I'm not really against it, but I'm not really for it, is I just keep going back to when we were doing the play-by-play for the kickers when they were in, in the USL Championship and they had five subs and how frustrating that was of like they're making another one like not just for the stoppages in the game but but for tracking who goes where and oh they've changed the tactics again oh they changed the formation again it can just be a lot so that's maybe a minor thing but definitely a thing that came to my mind right away yeah i can see that i do remember that situation of it got a little bit overwhelming but maybe just because we weren't used to it yeah right maybe maybe us doing play-by-play should not be the uh, the target audience for FIFA's rule change. You don't think so? <laughs> My personal experience shouldn't uh, control the the fate of the entire global game. I mean, it should, but un- unfortunately, neither of us sits on IFAB. At least not yet. Yes. At least not yet. yet. Um, are you ready for today's questions, Taylor? I am ready for today's questions, Daryl. All right. Today's first question. And by the way, if you have a question for us, totalsoccershow.com slash questions is where you can send them. We always want your questions. Today's first question comes from Richard Rolson. It is a question near and dear and painful to my heart. <laughs> near, dear and painful. <laughs> Richard says, we are nearing the 10-year anniversary of the last World Cup for England's golden generation. So the 2010 World mm-hmm. Cup, where England lost 4-1 to Germany in the round of 16. Um, uh, Richard says England's golden generation of Lampard, Rooney, and Beckham. Um, I would add Gerard to that as well. As well. Um, Richard and some other players. Richard asks, why do you think the England national team 
did not live up to expectations when these three players played. And I would extend this out to essentially, why didn't the golden generation, which was roughly like 2004 Mm -hmm. to 2010, why didn't the golden generation live up to any of our expectations for England? Right, because like for a little bit more background, there was a point when you could have had some combination of like in a four four two Rooney and Owen, uh, Scholes, Gerrard, Lampard, Beckham, Ashley Cole, Sol Campbell, Rio Ferdinand, Gary Neville, and then a goalkeeper of your choosing. You so could you even could, and you could switch out Sol Campbell for John Terry if you wanted mm-hmm, to as well. Exactly, yeah. So you had the depth there. The question remains: Why wasn't there more success? Uh, I've done some reading. I've done some digging. I've done some viewing. I've got five possible explanations, Mister Grove. I have a similar number. Do you, want right. to go, do you want to go back and forth? Maybe we'll just trade explanations. Sure. Uh, I, I invite you to go first. I will start with weak, outdated, or non-modern by today's standards managers. And that would okay. be Sven Goran Eriksson. That would be Fabio Capello. That would even be Roy Hodgson. It's it's managers who seem sort of rooted in their particular style uh, and not even the style of the day, not even playing like a 4-2-3-1 or a 3-4-3 or, or trying to keep up to date with that. It felt much more like, well, I have to play a 4-4-2. We know that. Like it has yes. to be this no matter what. And sort of you see a lot of this conversation about like, how do you get Lampard and Gerrard together in a 4-4-2? It's like, well, you could not play a 4-4-2. <laughs> and that seems to have been an, inhi- an inhibiting obstacle from the jump is, well, we know we have to do this. So we're going to play like this. And we're going to try to cram people in and see if it will fit. But I do think some of the manager selections from that era, Steve McLaren, obviously, as well, did not help with the strength of the team. I would um, even go beyond the shape, like the the, the quite heavy reliance on 4-4-2 and go to the style of play. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very, very direct in hindsight. It's not something I thought about at the time, but the in the era where like Barcelona were becoming dominant and mm-hmm. tiki-taka and possession football, England really did just... Try, try to go force the ball really direct in an age when most teams were trying to hold on to the ball. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, so I think there's that level of rigidity as well. Yeah. So it's the formation and then it's the kind of style of play. And I would say with that, then you add another point I had would be the sort of the problem of having big names. And a couple of different players have spoken about this, that you kind of with a national team, you need to have the people who will do the unglamorous jobs, the things that aren't particularly sexy, but allow you to win. And so that might be like Blaise Matuidi playing left back or Paul Pogba dropping in and playing right center back on occasion. It means not necessarily getting the glory. And one of the points that I think I heard Steven Gerrard make is like, if you did want to change the structure to say a 4-5-1, are you dropping Wayne Rooney or are you dropping Michael Owen? Like, you know yeah. you're going to get destroyed from the press no matter what you do, especially if it doesn't go well. And so that almost became a sort of stumbling block for managers of, I can't really swap these people out because they're such big names in England that to change anybody is automatically going to be a headline and likely a headline in the wrong direction. And I'll I'll double down on that by saying a lot of teams have sort of say a big name celebrity player, right? right? Like if, uh, if the US men's national team dropped Christian Pulisic, it would be a massive deal, right? But the problem with England at that time is they had way too many celebrities yeah <laughs> like so david beckham was a big name Stephen gerrard was a big name frank lampard was a big name owen rooney and on and on and on right so you've got all these undroppable undroppable players at least in the eyes of the press and in the eyes of fans so it's a tough decision to drop any of them so then you're forced into trying to like trying to mush them into some sort of mm-hmm. team shape yeah um uh, instead instead of just making a bold decision and saying 
all right, is it Gerard or is it Lampard? Yeah, like if you go back to our conversation about like Real Madrid when they won five straight Champions Leagues, uh, well done to them or uh, European Cups. Like there was this idea of just put the best 11 on the field and you're probably going to win because they're that strong. And that maybe worked in the late 50s, early 60s, not so much in the more modern era when you kind of have to have a bit more style and substance and tactical approach rather than let's put the 11 best players or 10 best players yeah. on the field. And they'll probably figure it out because they're the 10 best players in the Premier League. And here are two two possible things that England never tried, right? Which is, one, to just go with some sort of ball-winning midfielder. Mm-hmm. Um, there was never like a straight-up, um, crunchy defensive midfielder. Not crunchy like, like granola, crunchy yeah. like your bones hurt. Um, <laughs> or both, as is the or, case with Kyle Beckerman. Or both. Or just a dedicated sort of yeah. intercepting defensive midfielder. And I'm thinking like, when Lampard played for Chelsea, he had Makaleli doing all the sort of reading the mm-hmm. game defensive intercepting, and he had Michael Essien knocking people over. You know what I mean? Steven Gerrard had Didi Haman and Xabi mm. Alonso as his midfield partners. And they were, they were all just complemented really well in their club teams in a way that they weren't for England. And I, I couldn't name a defensive midfielder really who could have, um, who could have stepped in and done the job. Yeah. Like Owen Hargreaves did it sometimes, but he wasn't that much of a tough guy, right? Um, Scott Parker maybe had a go mm-hmm. a few times. Um, so I'm, I'm like proposing that they should have done that, but there really wasn't a defensive midfielder either of the recognized quality and definitely not of the profile that could have displaced any of those Gerard Lampard Scholes midfielders from the team. Yeah. And, and and certainly not like maybe even from like a talent level could have, but then you're looking at like, yeah, you're trying to explain um, Scott Parker starting over Frank Lampard. That's going to be a tough one to explain. Yeah. But maybe, maybe that's the, Mm -hmm. maybe that's what they should have tried. Yeah. I think so. The other alternative would be to change the style and go with sort of a deep lying playmaker Mm -hmm. And if you think someone like Michael Carrick, I don't know how many England caps he got, but it, it's not as many as Gerard and Lampard. It's not as many as he deserved because there really was no room in that central midfield for him. But you could have built an England midfield that was possession heavy and started with Michael Carrick in a deep playing role and included Paul Scholes being like mm-hmm. the English Chavi, and then maybe had Gerard or Lampard running up and down, right? right. But then if you did that, uh, I'm, I'm sort of seeing the problem that a lot of England managers had. What do you do with David Beckham? Because he, he is such a classic literally right midfield is his position he can't play as like an advanced right forward he can't play as a right back so if you do that three-man midfield there's no spot for david beckham and suddenly right. it's really tough yeah unless or you it's a four five one yeah. or it's a four five one and you drop owen or rooney like yep. it's just it, it's like an impossible puzzle yeah and i think honestly like if you're trying to figure it out eventually you're just kind of all right a four four two will work and we'll just be sort of defensive i guess but then yeah. you still have that problem of say that midfield two likely to be lampard jared and we know that's a major problem and i think you hit upon it briefly but they'll they'll talk about that about how like when they're playing for chelsea or liverpool they know the other person is going to be doing this this and this so if it's chabi alonso with gerard like he knows exactly how to play with that person so that it suits his style but also complements chabi alonso's style same thing with frank lampard at chelsea and so then when both of them would show up for england they talked about how it would sort of be both of them making the exact same run on the opposite side and then realizing like oh we both made that well no oh you don't stay there either oh this is a problem and you have that sort of repetition of talent and of inclination and that led to uh, basically a lack of harmony in the midfield and it's also I think we've both seen this interview right yeah. it was on BT Sport with uh, it was Rio definitely mm-hmm. Lampard maybe Gerard as well it was mm-hmm. um, where they talked about one of the problems was essentially the rivalries of the Premier League like Liverpool Chelsea Man United uh, Arsenal I assume as well where they were really all going up against each other when it was the big four who were always gunning for the league um, those rivalries carried over into the England team and really affected squad harmony. 
Yeah, uh, Rio Ferdinand said, like, of... Because he and Frank Lampard came through West Ham together. They grew up playing together. And he said, yeah. like, we were best mates coming up. We we would share a locker. We would share a hotel room. Uh, but as soon as we basically ended up at United and Chelsea, I think he said even when he was at Leeds, uh, that it became, uh, like, the, a relationship deteriorated. He said, uh, we were both obsessed with winning and no one wanted to give up the competitive advantage. So there was this fear that if you start talking to Jampard, uh, Jared or Lampard, about what they're doing at their clubs or how they're playing, or like what the new manager wants, there was number one a fear that like you're going to think, oh, we're not doing that. But then also there was this secondary like role playing, game playing sort of mindset of like, is this a real thing, or are they trying to play like they trying to tell me false information? And I think as soon as you're sort of wary of your teammates and doing all these mental gymnastics, you're obviously not this harmonious squad that allows you to play good soccer together. I mean, wasn't there a line in there as well where they said they didn't realize how bad it was, essentially? Uh, I think the way it sounds at first is that it sounds like they actively disliked each other. And Steven Gerrard has said in the past, like, I did not like playing for any of those guys. But when you're with the national team, like, you got to kind of make it seem like you do. So you smile a little (laughs) bit. But in this interview, when asked about that, I think Rio Ferdinand clarified, like, it's not a thing we were really aware of. It's just that, like, they tried to do away with the clicks by having one big table and everybody ate at the one big table. But then it would be like... a Chelsea end and a Man United end or a Man United end and a Liverpool end with Chelsea in between and everybody still ended up sitting in their groups and they weren't really aware of it but they would go to the people with whom they were most familiar most comfortable and that tended to be people they'd come through the youth academy with if they were still there but otherwise it was basically their current teammates which again leaves you with like three or four distinct clicks in one team. Man, that's why the, the Southgate stroke of genius was getting those uh, those big inflatable unicorns to go in the pool. I mean, yes, but also <laughs> I think some of Southgate's work was done for him because one final point that I had, which I thought was really interesting, I'm stealing directly from Rio Ferdinand, he was basically arguing that we also didn't really win anything at youth level because those competitions weren't taken as seriously as they are now, and now you have U17s and U20s winning, and so they have this sort of foundational layer of, hey, we play together, we like playing together, we win stuff so it then continues through to when those players become 25 26 27 28 they still have fond memories of playing together so they're more likely to enjoy it whereas i think in ferdinand's era in the era we're talking about it was a lot of english players playing in england so instead of it being this unifying thing gerard would say like coutinho always look forward to playing with brazil because that team was so spread out that it's the one time you get to be around your teammates. You get to kind of yeah. be in a common setting, speaking the common language. Instead, with these English players, it's like, all right, well, we've gone from playing for our English Premier League, English-speaking club teams to the English national team where yeah. we're all competitors. <laughs> so it automatically is going to make everybody competitive and not particularly friendly. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, the, the final piece I would add to this is just the pressure from mm-hmm. the public that Absolutely. was on that English team. The, the expectation, because they were all these big-name players, the expectation of we were going to perform at a World Cup every time. And from what I understand, there's then becomes a lot, it generates a lot of nervousness for, for the, among those players because they don't want to fail and let people down. And they kind of know that maybe we're not the best team because it's not all clicking. Um, and we know what's coming for us when we, when we don't win. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, as soon as... And you can just see it in some of, like, the the footage from that era of them walking and just they just look like this sucks like i'm not happy <laughs> to be here i'm not comfortable uh if i do something wrong i'm gonna hear about it and i'm worried about the fifth sub so i'm not really focused on the game itself 
<laughs> All right, we've got lots more questions we, to talk about. We do, about unfortunately, Daryl Grove. I have you got one, more to say. one more thing I wanted to mention. I actually just kind of wanted to run this by and hear what you think. Okay. Um, one little thing that I think also maybe contributed to some uncertainty is the lack of a, like an, a, an established number one uh, in terms of the goalkeeper. Going back and looking, what, 2002 World Cup, you had David Seaman starting. 2004 yeah. Euros is David James. 2006 is Paul Robinson. 2008, you don't qualify. 2010 is David James again after Rob Green has the mistake against the United States but like David James I, I guess gives you some semblance of stability but really you don't have that goalkeeper that yeah. really brings you the confidence maybe you want when you're going into an international competition like that when you know your goalkeeper is going to be able to bail you out at least once a game that helps build that confidence but when you have a fear that the ball is going to bounce over the goalkeeper's foot and go in you're maybe a little bit less confident well, maybe Gary Neville shouldn't put his back passes on target. Um, <laughs> but I do think what we're talking about is a David Seaman hangover. Yeah. Basically, mm-hmm. that we, England had an established number one. And there was just no debate, no question for like six to eight years that David Seaman was the goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once he retired, then there was just never like an obvious, obvious England keeper. And we just sort of rotated through keepers at a, at a, pretty, at a pretty sharp clip. And it actually, I know, I know this is um, a bit of a tangent, but I think it's really relevant. In hindsight... Jill Ellis's decision in the post-Hope Solo era to just say, it's a Lissanaya. I don't care what else happens. Yeah. It's a Lissanaya. Oh, all these players, Bledsoe's doing really well in NWSL. Nice. It's a Lissanaya. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it really adds a real a, a level of stability and stops all the questioning within the squad and outside of the squad um, that England were never able to do because they would chop and change literally within a World Cup group stage. Yeah. Fabio Capello chopped and changed between Rob Green and David James. But Jill Ellis would just say, it's Alyssa Nair. Right. You need, you need it to be Alyssa Nair when it's obviously Alyssa Nair, when you don't want to invite more speculation and more uncertainty. Yeah. But when you're saying like, well, it might be somebody else. We're not really sure. But it's definitely Lampard and Gerrard, no matter what, even though that doesn't seem to be working so much. That's the level of certainty that maybe you don't want. So if they flip those around, it all could have gone better. There we go. Um, anything else to say, Tyler? Before no, I think I'm done now. I think I'm done now. <laughs> After all before, that, I'm done. Before we do move on, mm-hmm. today's show is sponsored by DoorDash. Mm-hmm. Between never-ending ending laundry cycles and incoming emails, that sounds like my life, um, there's plenty on the to-do list, but you can give yourself one less thing to worry about if you let DoorDash take care of your next meal. That's right. Uh, Darrow, you will know this. Some listeners will know this. Uh, we had a leak on our sink, which required me to like rebuild basically our entire kitchen cabinet area around the sink. That was fun. But that meant uh, a deactivated sink for five days. We wanted to limit the number of dishes. We wanted to limit the number of food that, or the amount of food we were cooking. So DoorDash incredibly effective in terms of bringing us like the easy quick food that you might want but then also some of your like uh favorite food that you maybe can't get to these days uh chicano's cocina daryl they uh they featured prominently for two of the five days we were without a sink you made a fine choice. You Thank made you. a fine choice. Um, ordering with the DoorDash app is easy. You just open the app. You choose what you want to eat. That's my favorite part. Mm-hmm. And then your food will be left safely outside your door with the new contactless delivery drop-off setting. Oh, I lied, Taylor. My favorite part is eating it. <laughs> that, that's fair. Uh, I, we had we had a service like this when we were in Turkey before. I think a lot of these existed. And I remember it being like manna from heaven, like I guess in terms of food actually just kind of arrived, but also that you didn't have to speak the language. You could just look at the pictures, sort of do the translating and then figure it out. And you can do the same thing here, though I am able to read English slightly better than I could read Turkish. So it is an easier experience. But if you're one of the one of the folks living in the United States, Puerto Rico, Canada or Australia, you can uh, utilize DoorDash to make your life just that much easier. 
And many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery. Just open the DoorDash app, select your favorite local restaurant, and your food will be left at your door. And we've got a deal for TSS listeners. We certainly do. Our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more and zero delivery fees for the first month when they download the DoorDash app and enter the code TSS. That's $5 off your first order and free delivery fees for a month when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code TSS. Don't forget, that's code TSS for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Thank you very much to DoorDash for sponsoring today's episode and giving us uh, easy food. Thank you to Richard Ralston for asking another great question. Uh, A second question from Richard. What do you feel is the appropriate number of teams Major League Soccer should have? Don Garber was quoted at the beginning of 2020 season saying uh, that 30 teams would be the limit. Do you think 30 clubs is the right number or should it be more or possibly even less? I have a hot take. What's that? um, Which I really and truly believe. I don't think there should ever be a limit. Okay. I think the way it looks in the United States is that Major League Soccer is the is the highest level, is the dominant league. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't look like we're getting pro rail anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So I don't think the door should ever be closed on cities getting teams that can play at the highest level. I also think just soccer is stronger if you have Major League teams in as many cities as possible. And I think, I know that there's uh, people will be worried about like uh, saturation and scheduling and all that kind of stuff. I actually think it's really easy in the size of the United States to have an Eastern Conference, a Western Conference, then a Central Conference. Then if you have to subdivide it even more from there, Major League Soccer could be as big as it wanted to be. It could have as many teams as it wants to have. And I think that's what would be best for soccer in America. I mean, yes, there will obviously then be headaches of like, well, you have two different conferences. It feels like you have two different leagues. And that's the thing that we kind of dealt with with USL Championship. But that said, there's going to be confusing wrinkles with any sort of format. So with that said, I I agree with you because if we're not going to have Pro-Rel, you don't want one limited 32-team league where then no one ever feels like they can get involved. It kind of limits development elsewhere, and no one ever feels like they're going to achieve past a certain point. So as long as Pro-Rel isn't there, I'm not entirely sure there should be a limit. I agree with you. Because Yeah, because, what I mean, why close the door, right? The, the America is so big that if it was just thir- – imagine if Europe only had 30 teams right. that played first division football. Mm-hmm. It, it would maybe be the dream of some of the bigger teams, but uh, <laughs> them aside, I don't know how, how popular that would be. Um, and I also think it's just – it's better for – say you, you end up with better-funded academies, often mm. free academies, when they're MLS teams. Um, there's just more chance of more of those existing the more Major League Soccer teams that you have, right? And I know I know people listening to this might not like the idea of this because they would like to see Major League Soccer forced to open up to Pro-Rel or maybe even people would like to see Major League Soccer fail because they don't like the whole single entity thing. And even even though I have some of those thoughts, it it's still the only professional league that has succeeded in lasting 25 years yep. in the United States. And I really think if you just want to keep expanding soccer, you may as well go with what's been working. Um, and if that means just more and more Major League Soccer teams, I'm 100% behind it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I think what we'll end up getting, though, is probably like a cap on expansion, at least for a while, until there is some sort of structural change or until they feel like it's strong enough where they can move to 40, let's say. I think probably where they stop is somewhere around 32. Uh, and I think we've you and I have talked about this previously on and off air, that like that's where maybe the division makes sense. If you split into four divisions, you get a lot of familiarity. Maybe you play every team in your division home and away. You play everybody else in the league once, and that kind of builds up regional rivalries and regional familiarities but then you still get to play everybody that is i'm guessing where they will stop i think there's other models that make sense of getting to 36 or getting to 40 
Um, well, what I'm arguing yeah. is there's, there's a model for as many teams as you want. Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It could be yeah. 100 teams. I could find a model where you all like uh, split into various conferences and play against, you have like a, a balanced schedule within your conference. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty easy to to make soccer happen. And it, so there shouldn't ever be a, a limit on the teams. And I'd even say Garber has said many times, this is the limit, and then they go beyond mm-hmm. it. So yeah. I, I sort of think he's artificially inflating... Yeah demand by setting a limit right because if people think oh there's only, there's only two expansion slots left this city we better get it together we better be willing to pay the expansion fee we better build our stadium now and all that but if if they're told the limit is 70 teams and we're at like 20 something then there's a future cities will be like okay we'll get to that in the future isn't it like <laughs> this is maybe, left. maybe an analogy that works like isn't this sort of what they do with diamonds like aren't diamonds actually fairly commonly occurring but then you kind of stockpile them and you keep the market like not saturated so therefore the cost uh stays high uh and i feel like that's maybe what he's doing yeah it's like he's saying he's creating a scarcity by saying there's only going to be two more spots and as soon as those two spots are filled somehow magically there were two more spots like <laughs> yeah. it just keeps going from there you never guess what i found at hq <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. That needs to be like a South Park episode of like how he had to struggle to find these two extra spots, but really they were there all along. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I, I personally would love, uh, I think I prefer an 18-team league uh, with ProRel, and then you can have as many teams as you want. Uh, I, I like leagues that only have 18. That's just my personal preference, but I'm with you that I think Major League Soccer could have 18. It could have 64. Who knows? Yeah. But I and think there's you- there's room for growth. And then the other thing that could happen, of course, is the uh, cooperation or merger with Liga MX. Yeah. Um, if you want to hear more about that, I really heartily recommend last Friday's episode of Allocation Disorder with uh, Sam Stechkel and Paul Tenorio. You can find it in this feed. If you scroll back, you can listen to Paul and Sam have a really good, deep conversation about the proposed MLS or the suggested MLS Liga MX cooperation or merger. I think right in the middle of that show, Portinorio comes up with the best possible idea, but I won't spoil it. I think you're going to have to go and listen to it to hear about it. All right, I have not yet listened to that episode. I may have to rectify that this evening. Uh, But before I'm able to do that, we have more questions to ask and answer. Daryl, do you have anything else to uh, say about Richard's second question? I always have more to say, but I'm going to tell you off air. All right. Uh, Then why (laughs) don't you, instead of telling me uh, more of what you have to say, why don't you ask me Brian's question? All right. Brian Hansen says, you have mentioned several times that Serginho Dest would not work as a wingback. What is a wingback and what skills are unique to that position versus a fullback who joins the attack? Could you provide examples of each? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I have some explanations. I have an answer to this. I wanted to start. Daryl, this will come as no surprise. I want to take issue with the question for a moment. Yeah, or not even take issue, but have we said that Serginho Dest would not work as a wingback? Or have I, we said that the idea of like Burhalter just bringing out a wingback system isn't necessarily going to work right away? I don't think I've ever said that Serginho okay. Desk would not work as a wingback. I think, mm-hmm. if anything, what I will have said is I wouldn't just throw him out there to play right. wingback in a game tomorrow because Ajax have never played that way with him, right? He's exactly. never played, he's never been a wingback. I think he has a lot of the skill set to be a really effective wingback, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't just like throw him out. I think, I actually think, I think I've said this many times, but it's kind of a, um, it grinds my gears to, <laughs> to quote Peter Griffin. Um, I think a lot of people, when they write out their US men's national team preferred starting lineup, they end up using wingbacks because it makes it look like the full, the attacking fullbacks we have get to have all kinds of freedom mm-hmm. and it lets you have lots of extra central midfielders and it lets you have two strikers. And I think it's just really tempting to go with wingbacks because it looks good on paper. And I think the truth is, when you think about what a wingback is, it's a lot of responsibility and a lot of hard work. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and that to me is the essence of the question is the essence of my answer. I think in terms of Serginho Dest, maybe we've talked about him like not just being thrown in there. The one that we've talked about a lot more commonly that I can remember is DeAndre Yedlin as a wingback. Yeah. And we said more or less the same thing. Um, and and, I, and I'll get into that in a second. But first, uh, to like really kind of drill deeper into what Brian's question actually is, I would basically say the distinction between a wingback and a fullback is rooted a lot more in history than it is maybe in present day. Because I would say historically a fullback is part of the back four uh, and their primary focus is defense. They're fully back. Whereas a wingback, uh, usually more in a back three, responsible for kind of the entire side, whichever they're patrolling. If they're a left wingback, they're staying on that left-hand side. They're responsible for getting up and getting down. And there's more license to attack. Nowadays, I think fullbacks tend to be utilized as either directly involved in the attack or like late arriving to facilitate further attacks. But either way, fullbacks are much more attacked. So they're more similar, like in terms of what like technical aspects they need and what sort of allows them to be good. The fundamental issue and what you said very early on is just that it still is a different position. Even if it's an attacking player who plays wide and is focused on defense, you're still going to be asked to do a lot of different things. And so if you don't have that familiarity, if Serginho Dest is playing in a back four as a right back and is now playing as a right wing back for the U.S., it's the same area of the field, but it's not going to be a lot of the same sort of patterns and like practices of play that he's going to be used to and, and where he needs to be in this exact moment. And that, I think, is sort of why we're, not a, why we're not in favor of just throwing somebody in there is because it does require a lot of work and a lot of training to get that situation down. And here's the key difference, because Brian might be wondering, like, okay, so what is the difference between yeah. an attacking fullback um, and a wingback? Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's that you have no partner. Right. When you're the right back, mm-hmm. you often have a right mid or a right winger to work with you. Right. You can overlap them. You can combine with them. They can provide the width. And if you're the right back, you can drift inside. Right. You see Serginho Desk dribble inside quite a lot for Ajax. When you're a wing back, you are responsible for the width on that side. If you come inside and try and get involved, there's no width on that side. You've completely abandoned your post. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, even though people think a wing back um, is a more attacking fullback position, to me, it's actually more limiting because you are sort of glued to the touchline in many ways. You're not allowed to wander in field and get involved in the interior. Okay, I mean, otherwise, I think, you've, you've left your team with no width. Yeah, I, I understand what you mean. I think there are like exceptions to it. Like Atraf Hakimi seems to be given license to kind of go where he wants to. But I think, again, that is very specific to that player because you have the right center back sort of like slide over and stay there. And even then, primarily, he's staying on that right hand yeah, side. And often, so I think- of, often the right center back for Dortmund is Piszczek, who used mm-hmm. to be a right back. Do you know what I mean? So they've worked yeah. out a bit of a shuffle system where they have a right back because Hakimi goes forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like the examples then, I would say Dest is that sort of the modern fullback who's getting forward, maybe gets inside, but still has the kind of the the partner out wide to stay wide if Desk goes inside or Desk can stay wide and then that player goes in, but they've kind of yeah. got somebody to combine with. Uh, and, so and- yeah, I think that makes sense to me. And right now, before mm-hmm. he leaves, it's Hakim Ziyech, right? Yep. Who is a left-footed right winger who loves to sort of dribble to the interior or drift inside and join the attack. So it's almost like Dest can arrive late and replace the width that Ziyech was mm-hmm. providing when Hakim Ziyech has gone inside. So that's a nice partnership on that right side for Dest and Ziyech. Yeah, and I would say other examples of that would be Jordi Alba at Barcelona. That's a good one. And then Marcelo at Real Madrid, definitely a very attacking fullback who sort of performs yeah. a similar role. So Alfonso think, Davies, I'd add to that list now as well. Yeah, that's that's definitely fair. Uh, what about in terms of like modern wingbacks? Uh, I, I do think of as staying wide, being more involved in the attack, and 
I feel like oftentimes they're sort of specialized. Like I, I mentioned Hakimi earlier, but I would say like the rise of Victor Moses at Chelsea and how successful he was specifically under Antonio Conte is I think because Victor Moses fit exactly what Antonio Conte wanted his right wing back to be. And it's also why Victor Moses has gone to Inter Milan now. But after that, he didn't have as much success as I think because it's it's a more specialized position, even if it feels very similar to what we've already been talking about with an attacking fullback. Yeah, maybe any Antonio Conte team is a good one to look at, right? Like <laughs> He signed Ashley yeah. Young and I believe Moses in January to, uh, to just bolster his, his mm-hmm. wingback option. So any, any Antonio Conte team is a good team to look at in terms of what wingbacks are doing. I've got to admit here, Taylor, I, I did not see the could you provide examples of each, so I didn't <laughs> do my wingback research. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, and so I, but I think we, we have some good examples we've mentioned. And I think like... This might not be as helpful, but if you're still trying to understand this, I would say that, like, from a FIFA video game perspective, you could put Serginho Dest in as a wingback or as a fullback, and I'm guessing his number, whatever it may be, stays the same. It's not like you're having a forward become a defender and they're going from an 85 rating to a 49 rating or something like that. But I do think that in terms of the reality of that game, you'll see him look way less effective as a wingback because you're not going to get the fluidity of the performance. You're not going to get like the natural positioning. He knows exactly where to be. He might be less familiar with his assignments. So even if his, if he is like technically able to perform the same way, I still think you'll see a downturn in his yeah. overall performance. I agree because again, I, I mentioned earlier that he does like to come inside. You often see him dribble inside that you would do less of if you're a wingback. And you see him combine with other players out wide, which you would see less of him doing um, as a wingback. There we are. There we are. All right. So uh, we're not opposed to Serginho Dest or DeAndre Edlin being wingbacks necessarily. Maybe Daryl a little bit more so than me, but we want to see it uh, make sense and come about via practice and precision. Then why not? Let's see what happens. There we go. There we go. Next question, Taylor, mm-hmm. comes from Michael Hastings Black. Michael wants to know what, if any, competitive advantages do professional soccer players have when playing FIFA? I could only think of two. Uh, I could only think of a couple, and then I realized I was approaching this question from the perspective of what competitive advantages do they have and not do they have competitive advantages. Uh I pulled a few former professionals. Most of them, the consensus seemed to be there's no real advantage. That, if anything, it's more frustrating because the (laughs) physics are still video game physics, which means you're facing the wrong way, and then suddenly the player has turned and shot and hit upper 90 from 35 yards out. That doesn't happen. And whereas if you're used to video games and the sort of glitchiness of them, you might just think like, oh, that's FIFA being FIFA. Whereas if you're a player who knows that should not have happened and you were technically doing the right thing, (laughs) cough, cough, Bobby Warshaw, cough, cough, then you're going to be more frustrated that the game didn't sort of follow the laws of reality. Yep. This is what my notes say. I don't think any soccer knowledge ports over because even though FIFA looks convincingly like soccer, it's not soccer. No, it's like, not. If it was, if each game lasted ninety minutes and had spells where almost nothing happened, it would be a lot more like soccer. But that's not mm. how FIFA the video game works, right? No, Just because the not. stadiums are realistic and the player movements look realistic and all that, it doesn't mean it's a realistic simulation of what it's actually like to play soccer. But I did find some competitive advantages. Mm-hmm. You ready? All right. I've got um, one as well, but I want to hear yours. Um, player professional footballers have lots of free time in the late afternoon once training is over. <laughs> I am not kidding. They have yeah. time to practice at FIFA. Um, and then <laughs> they also all their teammates are also free. They can get a lot of experience playing against each mm-hmm. other. 
Yeah. And and I think there's a lot of trash talking that goes into it. So it probably we already know professional athletes are mildly competitive uh, yeah. at the very least. So I think maybe there's that element of like, well, I want to be better. I want my player to be better. So I got to perform better on the field. So next year, my player is an 89 instead of a 79. <laughs> but also, I, I had this in my notes as well. I would argue that competitiveness that they had mm. is higher than the average person because they're professional yeah. athletes. Yeah. That will make them better at video games because they'll be determined to win. And I'd couple that with your average soccer player probably has better hand-eye coordination than the average person. Yes, they they certainly do. And I think they have a greater like tactical understanding, which was my one advantage. But I did want to say before I get into that, that like if you watch professional athletes play FIFA, it is reminiscent of like like Sopranos mobsters that there is this switch flips and there's just there is no compassion. There is no like, oh, I'm not that good. It is immediately trash talking and like, I'm going to destroy you. Like there is <laughs> it does bring about that level of, uh, of competition in a way that few other things do. Um, but I think that those players do tend to have a better tactical understanding than most people. And I, and I did have one former player say that, like, we're sort of taught to see the game as we're playing it from, like, a, a bird's eye view so we can understand our spacing and where we need to be. And when we can actually do that in a video game, we might be a little bit faster at sort of being able to read things because we already know, like, in terms of where we are on the field and our spacing. So when you can actually see everybody from the bird's eye view, you might be able to play just a little bit more quickly because you already have that background. But that was okay. that was only one possible explanation for the uh, the strength of professionals. Yeah, I mean, and even that feels like a bit of a reach to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. So there you go. So I would say... Maybe maybe they're more likely to get in their own way as opposed to just an average uh, amateur player. <laughs> more likely to get in their own way. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Before we move on, do you mind if I just go back to the uh, the wingback question? Sure. Did you do second? some wingback research while while no, I was talking? It was you mentioning uh, Bobby Warshaw's name. Uh-huh. Um, made me think about. Uh, so Bobby Warshaw's been doing a lot of like questioning the fundamentals of soccer. Um, if you heard the MLS Assist episode with, uh, I mean, with I've Joe heard Bobby Warshaw speak and Jordan. Yeah, but I can just imagine in Bobby's voice hearing the phrase. Um, like the distinction between fullback and wingback like might be breaking down. Do you know what yeah. I'm saying? Because uh-huh. because so many players like Alfonso Davis, uh, for example, spend so much time attacking from left back that maybe that distinction between like people thinking that a wingback is more attacking than a fullback, it might not even be true anymore because especially if you're on a good team, a fullback does more as much, if not more attacking than a wingback. Yeah, I, that that's probably true. I think... At its core, what it goes down to, I think you explained this once to me many years ago when I was like, I still don't feel like I have this down. Like, what, like, can a fullback be a wingback? If you're in a back three, can you be a fullback? And it felt like your answer, I don't want to like say what you said is incorrect or anything like that or say it incorrectly, but like, basically in my mind, it's like if you're in a back three and you're playing wide, you're the wingback. If you're in a back four, you're a fullback and sort of never the twain shall meet. You can't be a fullback in a back three. But yeah, but I'd argue that's not true anymore, right? You can, really? but you can be in a back four and end up just doing most of your job as attacking again, like like Alfonso Davis. I, I think yeah. it's not as it's not like the strict distinction like it used to be, or like it might be when you line your team up on FIFA. I, okay, I guess so. I, I think I think then maybe Three. I disagree with you. I mean, so look at look at the um, the way that the Bellhalter sometimes mm-hmm. played with the US, right? Where Reggie Cannon's job was when the US attacked, he just had the entire flank to go. He was the 
all the width on the right and mm-hmm. like Jordan Morris would come inside so he would step out of his way so Cannon could have the entire right side and then Tim Ream who technically if you just look at the lineup is playing the mirror position at left back is pretty much asked to stay home right mm-hmm. so that's why I think it's not it's not that useful to just have a strict distinction between fullback and wingback anymore because there are players who you can say are playing at fullback but really they're more attacking than any wingback so so I guess like I am literally talking about back three means this back four means that you're saying it doesn't really matter to you that yeah, like I, I think just from a general classification standpoint it's weirder to me to say like oh that left wing back is actually playing like a full back as opposed to a wing back but look at um look at the uh, we're going to talk about DeAndre Yedlin later mm-hmm. right if you looked at a lot of Rafa Benitez games and he played with a back five mm-hmm. and say DeAndre DeAndre Yedlin was the right back I would call him a right back because they're, they're staying in the back five he's barely getting forward when Newcastle are playing a 5-4-1 and only attacking with their front three, then are you really a wing back if you're just told to stay stay wide, stay at right back, stay home the whole time, and we've got three centre backs? So I don't think you can automatically say there are three centre backs, therefore I'm a wing back. It's really okay. more about whether your instruction is to attack or not. All right. But so then are you advocating that basically there's no distinction between the two that you just have to say like, oh, they're playing as like a defensive minded attacking left sider? I, I would say yes. I would bet when players are given instructions, they're not told you're a fullback or you're a wingback. They're mm-hmm. sort of told, here's your job on the right-hand side. Here's what it involves. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, in, It's not as simple as just one phrase. Yeah. I mean, I th- yeah, I think a lot of times it gets boiled down so that we have a shorthand yes. to reference when we have conversations. But yeah, yeah. I, I know what you mean. All right. So I just wanted to, wanted to get that little rant out there. <laughs> Was that a rant? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's as close as I can get. I'm in a good mood. It's about as close as I can get. All right. All right. Uh, well, let's hope you stay in a good mood as we talk about today's sponsor. It's yeah. the Black Tux. Hey. We've talked about the Black Tux uh, many times. Are you, sure? Grove, are you wearing a tuxedo right now? I am not. I am in uh, shorts and t-shirt right now. But do you at least have the tuxedo t-shirt? I do. I do. I have the tuxedo t-shirt, right, well, which is in many ways worse than a regular t-shirt. If you're oh, going to get dressed yeah. up, do it right. Get a proper suit or a proper tuxedo and theblacktux.com can help you do that. I feel like Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig could maybe pull that off. And he I think of not. him as being able to pull off everything. Him he aside, would be fired I don't know. as James Bond if he wore a, a tuxedo t-shirt. His character in Logan Lucky may have worn a tuxedo t-shirt, <laughs> is I think maybe what I'm going back to. <laughs> In his quest to only play a Southerner. Uh, but you can be very confident that Daniel Craig can pull off a tuxedo. That's a rule. Uh, and if he wants to look especially stylish, which we know he does, James Bond always looks good, he could use the black tux because James Bond is traveling around a lot. He needs maybe that suit delivered to wherever he's going to be. He doesn't need to go in and get tailored. He's on the case. He's spying. He's watching people. He needs to make sure he doesn't have to worry about that. So he could just send in, uh, fill out the form uh, at the black tux. He puts in his measurements. He knows these things. And he gets his suit or tuxedo delivered exactly where he needs it to be for that poker game slash ballroom masquerade party slash uh, secret espionage meeting. <laughs> I think you're thinking of Eyes Wide Shut for one of those. Uh, but, but wait, so when He's you do in the, a ball somewhere, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, probably. When you do the find my fit option to, uh, uh-huh. to figure out your size, you just put in, put in your height, your weight, your shoulder size, things like that. Daniel Craig just writes built. <laughs> Have you seen me pull off wearing sweatpants? I'm the first team to ever do it. <laughs> um, uh, Black Turks also use 100% mm-hmm. merino wool on their suiting, 100% cotton on their shirting, and real leather for their shoes. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they will ship you your order uh, once you have placed it. You've figured out your style and your fit and everything like that. They ship you your order two weeks before the event so you can check it out one last time to make sure everything works perfectly and if you want it to fit perfectly look perfect but not cost 100% then uh, you can get 10% off when you order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com with the code soccer that's theblacktux.com code soccer for 10% off your purchase the black tux formal wear for the moment Mm -hmm. I should add a disclaimer though wearing a black tux is not a license to literally kill it's only a license to kill fashion wise Yes, it is. So thank you very much to the Black Tux for not allowing people to murder each other, but instead look very, very nice. (laughs) Daryl, my question for you before we get back to the uh, listener questions. James Bond versus Fast and the Furious has to have been proposed at some point in Hollywood, right? (laughs) And and Mission Impossible probably in there as well. They're all kind of the same in a lot of ways. Um, Mission Impossible and Fast and the Furious, especially. But I do feel I like someone has pitched that crossover. Studios, right? Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. We'd and I like think a, like, we'd Albert, have like a Spider-Man Marvel situation. Is it? Uh, is it the Broccoli family still controls the rights to James Bond? I think, or how the Broccoli, or how you're supposed to pronounce that? I don't know. You've you've lost me with this. I have no idea. I think it, the guy who created James Bond. I think the family still has the rights to it. Ian Fleming. So, but so then it must be. I What's think the Brooklyn's were the producers. I think they're the producers originally, and I think they have some of the controlling states, so I think they can control what he appears in and doesn't appear in, or maybe that's Ian Fleming's family. Either I way, see. I doubt Vin Diesel is making an appearance in a James Bond movie anytime soon. <laughs> if he does, they should make him eat broccoli. <laughs> uh, yeah, except it would be taller than him, so they'd have to put him <laughs> on an apple box to make sure that he can then eat the broccoli. I'm going to ask you the next question, Taylor. Please. It comes from Sean Cleary. Sean Cleary wants to know, is the U.S. men's national team better now than in 2002? Sean says, as a younger fan, I didn't know much about the 2002 World Cup run. And if listener, if you don't, they made the quarterfinals. Um, Sean says, I would like to think that the tremendous growth in the game in the United, Spe- United States mm-hmm. has led to a better national team. <laughs> don't we all? Um, but listening to recent content about the quarterfinal run makes me wonder if we have stagnated or even regressed. What mm-hmm. are your thoughts? All right, here is my my quick answer is I don't know, but there's a reason why. Okay. Uh, and it's because, like, I, I think it is not necessarily bad for teams of the past to be better than the team of the present. I would say Agreed. the Dutch team of the 1970s would give the current Dutch team a run for their money if you had, like, fitness and everything all, all equal. And, and I think that's why those teams are remembered, right? Like, the best teams ever that win the World Cup or go very deep into the competition tend to be remembered and tend to be compared to the modern team, oftentimes unfavorably, sometimes favorably. Yeah. And I think that's the case here, that I think if you look at that 2002 squad more than any other team, it is probably the best national team we've ever put out in terms of where the players were playing at the kind of peak of their powers or reaching the peak with some veterans and some youngsters coming through. I think that if you compare that team to our current roster, there are players in the current one that are stronger. There are players in the 2002 one that are stronger, and that's probably how it should be. I think the modern team edges it slightly, but I do think that team is especially strong, and that's probably the reason why we hold that team to such a high regard. I also think there's a caveat we should put at the top, which is that Sometimes teams go far in a World Cup and another generation team doesn't go as far. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that team was just definitively better than that other yeah. team, right? Because right. sometimes it depends on the World Cup draw, for example. And I think a good example is Colombia in 1994 at the World mm-hmm. Cup. 
you could a lot of people would convincingly argue that was the best Colombian team of all time, mm-hmm. and yet it didn't get out of the group stage, right? Nope. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't the best Colombian team of all time. It just means that that tournament went very badly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's that element to think about as well. That just because this 2002 team went to the quarterfinal, I don't think that necessarily means that they're better than say the 2010 team. Mm-hmm. Like the, we could have that argument, but I'm saying it doesn't have to be that 2002 was the massive high point just because it went to the quarterfinal. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. But I think I think that's why that team sticks out is because of the deep yeah. run. But it that was deep good. Run it exists. was a good team. It certainly was. But that deep run exists because of the talent there. Yeah. And so, like, like Tyler Adams or Claudia Reyna, that's a tough one. That's a really tough one to go back and forth on. Christian Pulisic or Landon Donovan, another tough one that, like, I, I don't know which one is better. And I think there are positions where we would probably look at that 2002 squad and think, yeah, I, I would I would have some of that. I wouldn't mind Frankie Hadick being our left back again, a peak Frankie Hadick. Yeah. But then Maybe like, even you know, now. Go on, Frankie. Yeah, exactly. But like Weston McKinney or Pablo Mastorani, I feel like that one is maybe easier to settle on. Sergio Desta Reggie Cannon versus Jeff Agus, especially given that Portugal game. Like there are stronger players in in the current team than there were in two thousand two. And I think if you blend them, you get a very good team. Um I do think probably because of just the way the game has progressed, I think, generally speaking, modern teams are probably top to bottom more capable of winning than their than the teams of the past who maybe had more fixed roles or were representative of a shift in the strategy at that time period. Uh, and But I think if we kind of gave certain teams a month or two to prepare and get caught up and adjust to new technique and wearing new shoes, I think they'd be just fine. And I think that 2002 team would be pretty solid in the modern era. Well, to be fair, Sean isn't asking, would the 2002 team or mm-hmm. the 2020 team win if they played each yeah. other, right? He's really asking about, um, is it the case that we've sort of not managed to progress since 2002? And I would answer that question by saying that I think we have progressed. We've just had a massive dip in the middle. And I mm-hmm. think if you look at the players on this 2020 team, um, they could in the very near future be as good as that 2002 team. But right now, it's a lot of young guys, Mm -hmm. right? So I looked at the 2002 roster and I specifically looked at their ages. So you had two young guns in Demarcus Beasley and Landon Donovan, who were both 20 in 2002. You had John O'Brien, who was youngish, still at 24. And then you had a lot of guys that were like peak late 20s or just hit 30, like McBride, Rayner, Pope, uh, Sanna, um, Kobe Jones, Eddie Lewis. And then you had some really experienced guys like Ernie Stewart and Jeff Agus. Mm-hmm. Brad Friedel was peak goalkeeper age at 33. But then you look at this 2020 team and you think of the, like, like Christian Pulisic is at Chelsea, Tyler Adams is at Leipzig, Weston McKenney is at Schalke, but they're all just out of their teens, right? And like Sargent and Serginho Desta Ajax are literally still in their teens. Um, Gio Reyna and Yulis Ijana are still in their teens. So I think there's really potential for 20, the 2020 team to be as good as or better than the 2002 team. Mm-hmm. But they're just at this weird disadvantage when they're, they're all still kids, basically, mm-hmm. whereas 2002 was a well-rounded, mature roster. Yeah, exactly. And, and I do think 2002 as well benefited from a relative lack of coverage that, like, I've said this before. I remember turning that game on and being like, John O'Brien? Who are you? And there's <laughs> no way we would not know. I mean, that is the equivalent of not knowing her, who Serginho Dest is nowadays. Like, yeah. that just would not happen if you're an American soccer <laughs> fan, I don't think. Um, I also wanted to say to your point about, like, the downturn in form, it is worth remembering that, like, or at least maybe this was just me, but I remember knowing or believing in the sort of every other World Cup rule that, like, 1990 is 
is is good in that the United States makes it to the World Cup for the first time in fifty or forty years, whatever. Yeah. Uh, forty years. But then they do not do well in that tournament. Ninety four, they do well. Ninety eight, bad. Two thousand two, good. Two thousand six, bad. Twenty ten, decent, good. Twenty fourteen, decent, good. Twenty eighteen didn't go. So we basically just flipped twenty fourteen and twenty eighteen. But there has <laughs> always been this sort of up and down to the national team, and so I think that is sort of par for the course. So then, yeah, you look at sort of where this team is right now, and they're younger, but they've played more games or gotten more opportunities, and I do think there's more potential there. So I don't think they've regressed by any stretch of the imagination. Maybe just the situation, to your point, feels as though it's worse than maybe it's been in the past. And I actually think the big missing thing here is the article that Brian Sharetta wrote for American Mm -hmm. Soccer Now about the missing years, right? Which he refers to as basically... Players born between 1990 and 1994, whatever was going on in American soccer at that time. And my my theory is that it's that the Development Academy had just started um, in 2007. So those players were young when the Development Academy had just started and hadn't quite got it figured out yet. So players born 90 to 94, they would now be 26 to 30 years old. And that's the generation that is like a big missing talent gap. And that's why we have all these youngsters, teenagers, early 20s, um, who are the, the literally the best players and the core of our national team right now. And that's why the 2020 team is weirdly imbalanced. But mm-hmm. give them a few years and I think they'll be as good as that 2002 group. I have a slightly deeper question that could be a bit rambly. So do you want me to ask you that off air? Maybe that can be a topic for another day, but it relates to like the way that players developed in that time period i'm i'm a gambling man let's do it all right all right here's my question for you do you feel like like all right it's a theory that just popped into my head we don't talk about this very often but there was this prevailing idea that the united states system is too much predicated on england that we watch the premier league we want to be the premier league we want to be english clubs we want to be england so we do things a lot of the way england did it and there was long this idea that well why don't we look to south america which is much closer and much more representative of the people we're going to be playing or central america and learn from them and i almost wonder if that was the case and then the premier league became so much more globally oriented that they then incorporated other philosophies and other coaching approaches and brought in other players and that almost filtered down to the way american soccer did it is that a possible explanation for the way things went i mean you took a lot of leaps of logic i don't uh-huh. i'm not saying any of them were incorrect i just don't know how many of them i would take with you without researching them that's fair. I just I think about some of those teams in the '90s that we watched, that kickers team especially, and how much it was just a very like, oh, they just they came from England. It's a lot of English guys. They're booting it long. They're not trying to pass the ball around out of the back. But I don't think that U.S. soccer ever really changed from like, okay, you know what? Now we're just going to pay attention to La Liga or Liga Mekis or something like that. It feels more well, so that like, oh, they're not just kicking it long in England anymore. Maybe we shouldn't do that either. Well, no, I actually think the more. Um I think a timeline that makes sense is that it was a lot of like scrappiness in the early days mm-hmm. of American soccer, right? And then the Development Academy really was designed, the, the original idea was to create more technical players with the hope of creating world-class players. Um, and this missing generation from 90 to 94, it is the group of kids that in 2007 would have been exposed like to the first two, three, four years of the Development Academy mm-hmm. before it was like really, really figured out, right? And then since then, we've started to produce players like Pulisic came through the Development Academy, Weston McKenney came through the Development Academy, and Tyler Adams and so on and so on, right? So I, I think it's more that, that there was just a, a development blip as we tried to switch from this scrappy style to this more technical style. Um, and that, that's what's caused this missing generation. Okay. All right. That seems possible to me. 
I still I mean, like my we just watched what was there and then that was how we we uh, we changed. But there's probably a little bit more nuance to it than that for sure. I, I mean, I'm interested. I tell you what, I'm going to listen back and think about it, Taylor. About that? <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, in the meantime, let's answer some more questions. We've got two remaining. The next one comes from uh, Tim Kacher. Uh We love Tim. Tim Kacher. I've seen Tim. Yeah. Tim says, my beloved Newcastle United is finally getting sold by Mike Ashley. Unfortunately, the buyer is effectively Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, MBS is uh, not a great guy, says Tim. I would agree. This does not sit well with me, says Tim. I would agree with that as well. Uh, what would you do in my situation? Should I ignore the purchase and keep supporting the club, especially since they want to pump lots of oil money in? Or should I be principled and swear them off? So we have talked about this before. Yep. Was it was it on this show or was it on um, one of the Twitch streams with the Cooligans? I and I think I remember you saying that you, as a Manchester United fan, mm-hmm. if this happened to your team, that would be it for you. That is correct. Yeah, and I, I think it was maybe both. Like Ryan and I might have talked about it, and then you and I might have talked about it a bit on the Twitch stream. But yeah, I think if United had been purchased by uh, the Saudi Wealth Fund, uh, I think that's what it is. The public uh, that would have been it for me. The public yeah. investment fund, the Saudi Thank public you. investment fund, which is essentially, um, you know, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Yes, um, yeah, that would have been it for me because, and the distinction I made was like, I am not born and bred Man United. We have friends who are, and I wouldn't begrudge them for sticking with the club because that sort of loyalty, I, I feel like, is independent of everything that's happened to make that club so popular and so big that I'm aware of who they are and was aware of them in the 90s when they became my team. So it still is, in effect, like a team that I chose versus was born into. So to me, it's why. Even if, like, the Chinese consortium who own Wolves were sort of, like, ended up being shadier than we realized would have to be way shadier to be on the level of um, uh, MBS, I still wouldn't really begrudge you for sticking with Wolves second time I said begrudge. But for me personally, it sort oh, of I'm from wasn't, there, you mean. Yeah, it was yeah. a choice that I made to like Manchester United, and so it would be an active choice to continue to support them. And forgive me, Daryl, for, for going long. My final thing is just that with that so in I've, mind— I've, wor- I've worked with you before. Okay, cool. Uh, I would say that basically you're going to get hit for it every time. You know that. You know that no matter what happens, if Newcastle win the title, it's still going to be, well, that's great, and all it took was a journalist being murdered. Like, you're going to get that stuff. And my answer would be, if you're okay with that, and maybe you see that as trash-talking, that would happen anyway because it's the Premier League and everybody has a billionaire owner who's probably fairly unscrupulous, then if you're fine with it, then I would say stick with it. But, like, I would always already, like, when I met a person who was English— when I met Daryl and I was like, I'm a Man United fan, there's always that feeling of like, I know you think I'm a glory hunter. You think I'm going to be one of those people. And so to already have that and then be like, oh, and we're owned by the Saudi government, I just it would be too much for me. And I think it would be too much to always have to explain my fandom. So I would not be as OK with it. And then obviously there's all the other issues of human rights abuses and uh, everything else that would make me not OK with it. So I don't necessarily disagree with you. And also it's Tim's question is, what would you do in my situation, right? And I think you've really articulated exactly what you would do and why you would do it. So it's not my place to disagree with you here, right? But I'm just trying to tell you what I'm doing here. Mm -hmm. But I do want to kind of interrogate it a little bit just to get at it from a few different angles. So the first thing that struck me when you were describing that is that you seemed mostly concerned about what other people would think of you. Um, So is it more that you you're worried about the essentially the banter um, or is it more of a personal uh, feeling of i i can't in good conscience support that team yeah um it's it's a little bit of both and and i'll explain that but like i think it's like 
the in good conscience part is that I know I wouldn't enjoy it as much. That I know that if I were watching at home and the team scored, I wouldn't be as excited as I would be otherwise because it would still be like, ugh, we're going to cut to like the Saudi owner celebrating. I don't want to see that. That doesn't make me happy. But I think where I'm approaching it from a like what people are going to say standpoint is just that like, if you do, if this does happen and they do have the money that we would expect them to happen, it then stands to reason that aside from being horribly mismanaged, they'll be like Man City and they'll have the money and they'll compete in competitions. And so, whereas Newcastle were, at least recently, way less likely to be in the Champions League, I would argue, if it goes through, they're much more likely. So then you're going to be in public. You're going to be in games when you're going to be watching the Champions League at the bar. You wouldn't have had that previously. And you're going to be watching it, say, Newcastle are in a group with Barcelona or Bayern Munich or what have you. You're going to get that trash talking you wouldn't have gotten. And you kind of have to prepare yourself for it to be you're only here because of the Saudi government. Well, what about the idea that owners come and go Mm -hmm. and... Tim supported Newcastle United before Mohammed Ben Salman came along. Mm-hmm. And assuming Tim supports Newcastle United for the rest of his life, yep. it's very, very, very conceivable that Tim could be supporting Newcastle United mm-hmm. after Mohammed Ben Salman sells or moves on or, or whatever. So there's an argument that like, if you're in it for the long run, maybe the ownership is just fleeting. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly that argument. And that's where I think my next piece of advice for Tim, uh, it's what I learned from a couple of our city friends who supported Man City before they became the Man City we know today is uh, invest in some throwback kits. So you can say like, hey, I was here when I remember Mike Ashley. I remember Joel Linton being our big signing. I remember before that when we all thought Andy Carroll leaving was going to free up things like you, you have to have those jerseys. If you can find one with an actual Newcastle, like beer being the sponsor, that's maybe <laughs> the way to go so then you can say like hey i predate this it's not just about the money but again that's about proving it to other people i know that was more a joke than anything (laughs) um it just it it just is what i've seen our city supporting friends do is be like well i like them before i like them before i just (laughs) want to get that on record i will say um Mm -hmm. you can have lots of questions about other ownership groups yeah i would argue that we are in new territory with mohammed bin i would agree Mm -hmm. uh like he was a he ordered essentially that he that jamal khashoggi be lured to the embassy in Istanbul, mm-hmm. then be tortured and murdered, right? Yep. The Mohammed bin Salman regime is literally arresting women who are campaigning for more civil rights, like mm-hmm. the right to drive. There is just incontrovertible evidence to my eyes that he is doing horrible, horrible, repressive things, including murdering uh, people who speak out against him, right? So I would yeah. say this really is at another level in terms mm-hmm. of terrible people that are owning football teams. Yeah, I mean... It's like, I thought the closest we got is like, wasn't Gaddafi like sort of like, didn't he sponsor Juventus at some point? And even then it was like, that's not a good idea. What are you doing, Juve? But that was like the oil company he owned. This wasn't Gaddafi owning a football club. Yeah. Uh, I think that would have been uh, maybe a step too far. And here's the thing that Newcastle can hide behind is that it looks like Mohammed bin Salman won't be the face Mm -hmm. of this, right? I mean, they are like, like most of the news reports are saying public investment fund. And then you have to connect the dots to say that that's essentially Mohammed bin Salman, right? And there's the, uh, I think there's a pair of brothers who are like British businessmen who will be the face of it and sort of the, they're part of the conglomerate that's taken over. But all the money really is coming from the Saudi public investment fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also... Um, Wait, what, what, at, what argument are you making there? I'm confused. Um, just that, um, that, that it's not, 
that there are, that there are things to hide behind if you want to support Newcastle and say that it's not Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, I would say if I would you're say really that's turning a blind eye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because yeah. that's like that's like yeah, we know we're a front for the mob, uh, but like the mafia wasn't here when we yeah. <laughs> when when we laundered that money, so they weren't technically in the building. So we're not technically working. Like you still yeah. know what you're doing. Yeah, I, I agree. But I have all a part right. two and a part three to this, right? All right, all right. And I would also say crucially. Mohammed bin Salman doesn't fail the Premier League owners and directors test. Yeah. Which is like the modern equivalent of the fit and proper persons test. Mm-hmm. Because even though it's pretty widely and convincingly reported that he had Jamal Khashoggi tortured and murdered, mm-hmm. um, the, there's, there's a thing in the Premier League owner and director test that if, if you have certain criminal condi- convictions or professional qualifications, mm-hmm. they can sort of uh, say no to you being an owner or a director. Because he's in such a position of power, he's never yeah. going to be convicted of the things that he's done, right? No, no, not at so, all. So there's lo- there is lots to hide behind there. Um, so the part three I would say to this, though, is that one way to continue supporting Newcastle is to support Newcastle and support the team, but spend a lot of your supporting time protesting the ownership uh, of Mohammed bin Salman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 is, that is certainly possible. It just... Having been a Man United fan for as long as I've been, I remember the green, green and gold until the club is sold and we're going to protest. And it's it's a very hard thing to do from a distance because yeah, all you can do is sort of well. like, yeah, you also, but like, you don't feel like you're having that much of an impact because I can buy the green and gold scarf and like not attend Man United games when they come here for International Champions Cup. But my lack of money to that team probably doesn't speak as loud as people not attending games, which is something I probably wouldn't be doing already. Yeah, it's not like you can cancel your whole Premier League TV subscription, right? No. Because you've got to watch all the other teams as well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's um, a hard situation. So uh, you had one more thing? Uh, no, that was it. Part three oh, yeah. was maybe one way is to keep supporting, mm-hmm. but keep protesting. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, so I don't have an easy answer for Tim. I honestly don't know what I would do. I think, I'd, I, think I would, if I, if I had, if gun to my head, if <laughs> Ben Salman's goons put a gun to my head, mm-hmm. um, I think I would lean towards... Which, which they might. Which they might. I would lean towards no longer supporting them because I'm really confident that he's done the things that have been reported. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, as am I. And I think maybe, like, I, I am thinking more about, like, you asking, like, well, isn't that more about what other people think of your team? And, like, aren't you letting that control? And and I think you're right. That is probably a, an astute observation by you. And so then I'm wondering why that is. And I honestly think it's just because when the Glazers take over, like, you know they're not very good. You know, they own a bunch of strip malls and they care about Tampa Bay and they're bleeding the club. And you sort of, the more involved you get in that, the more you read about it as a fan, the m- like the more you're just like, oh, it's just a thing. Like you bought this <laughs> thing that I care so much about is the thing that you just bought. And that is yeah. a harsh reality. And so I think I'm probably already in the sort of maybe slightly cynical mindset of like, oh, it's just like one millionaire's billionaire's play thing. Hopefully a billionaire, not a millionaire. Uh, their play thing. It makes it harder for me to feel like truly connected to that team. And it is an, an issue when it comes to fandom of like, they're not really behaving rationally. They're not doing rational things. So I'll keep supporting them even as they stress me out and make me feel sad. And then we end up in Sunderland until I die season three. And I don't really know <laughs> if I need that in my life. All right, Tim, I hope we've given you some food for thought, even if we haven't given you like, you know, cast iron answers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, final question comes from Todd Tanner. Mm-hmm. Todd Tanner wants to know, DeAndre Yedlin, is he a better player for his club team than he is for the national team? Oh, and Taylor, when I shared the Google Doc, I didn't include this, but um, Todd had linked to a Bleacher Report story from it was like January 2018, where Yedlin was listed among the sort of top 10 fullbacks um, in the Premier League for that week. 
<laughs> All right. Um, it, he is sort of the like the relegation manager special where like it's like the mar- managerial merry-go-round of like this manager gets sacked so that this manager can come in and save the team from relegation. That feels like what DeAndre Edlin's life has been is sort of yeah. the fullback who, oh, okay, they've signed – they signed this person, he's going to come in, and he's going to be the new fullback, and that's going to catapult them to the next level. Never mind they're in a relegation battle, and DeAndre Edlin is starting every game consistently. <laughs> um, and, I, and I think maybe that is the answer, that like I think he does a limited number of things very well. And I think at Newcastle, it tends to be sort of dire circumstances. The manager is trying to get the most out of a limited squad or out of limited resources. And especially if, you're, if that's the case and your back is up against the wall with a relegation battle... I feel like your instructions are going to be slightly simplified and much more to the point, stay defensive, do what you need to do, maybe get forward here, but don't like it's it's less nuanced, I would say, than I think playing for especially a Greg Berhalter national team where you don't have as much time, you don't have the time to train, you don't have the regularity and the familiarity. So then if you're asked to do a couple of different things you don't normally do, it leads to problems. Um, the final thing would be there was the tweet that Adam Snavely, I think, uh, retweeted, like, where Yedlin, I think the ball goes into Christian Roldan playing for the national team. Roldan turns, and, like, Yedlin, all he needs to do is drop 10 yards, and he's wide open. But I think in that moment, he's expecting the ball to be sort of split between the two defenders, played in the channel, he can run onto it. That ball doesn't come, Roldan passes out of bounds. But to me, that's a good example of, like, maybe he's expecting a certain thing, and when that doesn't happen, he doesn't really recalibrate. Whereas, I think, with Newcastle, it's maybe a bit more limited in what he's being asked to do. And I think maybe that suits him a little bit more. Yeah, I think the system at Newcastle, at least the system that Rafa Benitez played and Steve Bruce played this year, suits him better than a Greg Berhalter system. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And often, especially under Rafa Benitez, the job was sit in a solid 5 4 1, which mostly means that Yedlin, I mean, he is a really like, I, I really like him as a person from what I've seen, yeah. right? He seems like a super competitive guy, super honest, hardworking defender yep. who will do whatever's asked for the team. Um, and I think if you're really asking a player to like sit in a back five and, you know, fight for the ball and use your, he has got physical gifts, right? No one's going to sort of beat him for pace down the outside. Mm-hmm. No one's going to out hustle him down the outside. He can be really effective doing that for, for Newcastle, but that's not the job when you play for Bearhalter's US men's national team, right? It's about building out of the back and it's about like executing the patterns of play and making certain movements. It's a very, very, very different job. And I think he was more suited to the job that Benitez was asking him to do. Not least because, you know, Yedlin makes, he makes defensive mistakes for the US, right? He sometimes like forgets his guy who's running in at the far post mm-hmm. because things are a bit more of a scramble when you're defending for the US. We're just historically, at least in recent years, we've had some sort of panicky defending moments. Whereas at Newcastle, it's less panicky defending and it's more um, everybody moving in lockstep and here's our very right. organized back five. And I think it's um, it's less likely that there's space for Yedlin to make a big mistake when everything is so organized around him. Does that, does that make some sort of sense? Yeah, it, um, it does. And so I think to connect it back to Todd's question, I think the answer is sort of yes. I think he is a better player for his club team than the national team. But I think it's because of what he's being asked to do at those two levels and his level of comfort with those assignments slash responsibilities. But here's the kicker, Taylor, if you're... If you're a Yedlin fan, it's not good news because he wasn't in Steve Bruce's starting 11 in the the recent Newcastle history, right? There was a lot of uh, Mankio playing right back for Newcastle. And then in the January transfer window, Steve Bruce went and got himself uh, two more fullbacks on loan. They got Mm -hmm. Danny Rose to play left back and a guy called Valentino Lazaro came in on loan from Inter. And he has also played right back ahead of DeAndre Yedlin. So it seems like he's fallen out of favor 
with Steve Bruce. But see, man, this is what happens. He, he's you can't kill him because they this happened with Emil Kraft. They brought him in in the summer. He was going to be their new starting fullback. Yeah, he starts a couple games and then Yedlin takes over. Right, but what happens if this uh, public investment fund Mohammed bin Salman takeover happens? Yeah, I don't think DeAndre Yedlin will survive that call. No, no, he won't. Right, so I'm actually I don't have an answer, but I'm interested in. Where next for DeAndre Yedlin? And for me, it would be, I would love for him to land somewhere that plays a similar style of football to what Greg Berhalter is asking his fullbacks to do. Where would that be? I don't, I mean, it would be like Ajax, but I don't mm-hmm. think DeAndre Yedlin's going to yeah, get signed right, by yeah. Ajax, right? So it needs to be like a, a high-level championship team or a lower mid to lower table Premier League team that like is playing a you know like a budget version of Manchester City football. <laughs> what uh, I'm hearing you say is Dortmund sell Atraf Hakimi, bring in Yedlin, he gets the experience and learns how to play that wing back spot and then he can do it for Greg Berhalter and the national team. That's I mean, what I'm hearing you say. Yedlin's getting towards his late 20s. He's not learning any new tricks, right? Hey, you don't know. All dogs can learn things. Uh-huh. Maybe uh, if, if Leeds get promoted, Marcelo Bielsa. If Leeds don't get promoted, oh then maybe for next season, uh, Yedlin uh-huh. could go and play for Bielsa. Yep. All right. I, I'm, down, I'm down for it's a Yedlin-Bielsa right? combo. Let's do that. Yeah. Or send him, <laughs> we could send him back to Sunderland and he could compete with Luko Nahim. <laughs> I think League One might be a bit of a drop. It certainly would. It certainly <laughs> would. Uh, oh, by the way, did you see the rumor um, while we're talking Newcastle uh, that they want Pochettino to go and coach them? Uh, Ryan and I talked a little bit about that. I believe that he was the odds on favorite. I will stay uh, out of it then. No, 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 no. It, it, it's fine. Uh, other than to say like, yeah, that makes sense to me as to why they would do that. But to, to me, did you talk about like the ethical side of it? Like if, if you're Pochettino, you're surely you should be asked the question. Do you realize you're working for Mohammed bin Salman? Uh-huh. Like an, yep, another, yeah. another job that Mohammed bin Salman asked people to do was lure a journalist to an embassy and torture and murder him. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it goes back. Is that in your contract? Will you be asked to do that? Well, but Daryl, why should he care about what other people have to say about, like, why is he caring so much about outside influences? Shouldn't he just care about himself and what he believes? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> See how it gets flipped around there? Yeah, I mean, because that is the answer is like, I mean, don't a lot. Of, I mean, isn't that the same thing for like Man City? Shouldn't they get that question? Shouldn't the owners of PSG get that question? Shouldn't Man City's owners when it was taxing Shinawatra? Like, like those questions should be asked all the time. I feel like they don't. I do think you're right that this is a very specific, specific circumstance where he probably will get asked that one. Yeah. And it will be that sort of... Because it's next level. I really think this, yeah. this is a next level bad guy owner. I, and I think... And, it, and it's interesting because it like normally you would get the... Like a uh, football manager, you know, it's I haven't experienced anything and I'm excited to play for this new group who have thus far been like resolute in refunding the club or what. Like you can't really do that generic answer because you're still then being complicit in the Saudi government. So yeah, absolutely. how he answers that one. Yeah. And whether or not the mound of money that they will be offering him, not even mound, I would say mountain of money uh, <laughs> is enough to make him more comfortable with answering that question. We shall see. One final Newcastle thing, if you'll permit it. I will be interested to see what happens if Newcastle try to pile a load of money in and run up against financial fair play. That is it true. is not as easy to spend mm. the money as it was when, say, like Abramovich took over Chelsea or even, I think, in the early days of Manchester City. Right. Yeah. yeah. But it is. I mean, there are certain reasons. I mean, that does explain why Newcastle makes sense, because it's not as though you're taking over. No disrespect, but like you're not taking over Fulham, who have. Is their maximum capacity like 18,000? It might even be less than that. It's not 50-something like Newcastle is. Right, exactly. And so I think like you do have the facilities in place to 
like if you make that team good, you're going to get a huge amount of match day revenue that will maybe allow you to spend a bit more than you would if you had bought a smaller team yeah. with less uh, like fan participation, basically. The incredible thing is Newcastle get loads of match day revenue even when they're terrible. Those fans right. are amazing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which, which, from a practicality, sad modern standpoint, means that they'll probably charge like double. Because it's like, hey, you were paying this amount of money when they were terrible. We're going to be way better with bi- with bigger names. So we're going to double your ticket prices. But that means we get to spend more. So you're welcome. Oh, okay. If you have a question for us, please send it to totalsoccershow.com slash questions. We love getting questions. We love answering them. We love doing all kinds of things on the Total Soccer Show, don't we, Taylor? Including yes, including the Champions Champion Cup of History. Mm-hmm. The best named tournament in history, even though we've already gotten solicitations for what the name should be and why we should change did, it. Did you I hire, I feel like you hired the Forward Madison uh, marketing team to name this trophy. <laughs> if by that you mean needed a way to title this for the show notes that I was trying to finish so I could go eat dinner, then yes, that is what happened. <laughs> oh, it felt, it felt smooth. It felt like the, uh, <laughs> oh, I've forgotten what they called it. The, you know, the Cup of Cups. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Maybe maybe it is Ford Madison inspired then. Maybe they've seeped into my subconscious somehow, a la Z- Z- Ziggy and uh, Elaine Bennis. <laughs> so we are planning to be back on Friday with uh, two more games in the uh, the Cup of History. Mm-hmm. Um, can we reveal what they are, Taylor? We, we, we texted can if about you remember them, them I remember that it's uh, Milan 2003 to 2007 versus another team. In, I believe it's uh, uh, Maradona's Napoli. Oh, wow. Okay, so uh, Napoli, 86 to 90. And then that it was correct. Boca Jun... No, it was Santos, 62 mm. to 63. Pele, yep. peak Pele Santos versus Jose Mourinho's first Chelsea team? Yep. 2004 yes. to 2007, that sort of era of Mourinho. But yeah, with emphasis maybe on that first team. Ooh, so that's that lampard Makaleli essian midfield we talked uh-huh. about, right? Yeah, no Gerrards allowed. No I mean, it's, it's, allowed. it's Pele versus Mourinho. That's a thousand percent how we're billing this game. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. All right, so all that is to come on Friday's Total Soccer Show. Anything else to add, Taylor, before we do some goodbyes? Nope, that's it for me. All right, well, I will say, Taylor Rockwell, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy, and I cannot wait for 007 versus Fast and the Furious coming circa 2023. His car would beat their cars. Listeners, (laughs) thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again very soon. 